0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, this is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books in Popular Culture. And today I'm here with Samantha Durbin, the author of Raver Girl Coming of Age in the 90s. Uh, Samantha, thanks for being here with me today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Could you start by talking a little bit about why you decided to write this book about your experiences in rave culture and the rave scene in the 90s?
2: Yes, of course. Um, so I, uh, I am a writer. I'm a lifestyle writer. I had discovered that kind of in my 20s. And so I was lifestyle writing um, for various media and brands um, throughout my 20s. And then um, in my early 30s, I was just hanging out with some girlfriends and uh, I was telling one of my crazy raver stories um, from when I was a teenager um, raving in the San Francisco Bay Area and the story about when I had a bad acid trip. And they were like, oh, my God, like, that's so crazy and like laughing and um, I kind of realized then like, wow, you know, I'm kind of comfortable telling these stories now. Um, cause I was, I was had a lot of shame, um, in my twenties and a uh, guilt about my behavior, especially towards my parents. Um, but then I was like, yeah, I was able to candidly talk about these experiences. And then I realized like, Hmm, you know, I have a lot, I have this interesting experience. Um, made my parents kind of always like nudged me like, Oh, are you going to write a book now that you're a writer? And I was like, I, I don't know what I'd write a book about. So it was like light bulb, like, Hmm, let me see if anyone's written a book about this. So I went on uh, line and did research and saw that no female had written her memoir about what raver life was like in the nineties. And Um, There were there have been lots of great books written about um, the electronic music scene and the drug culture of it all. Um, And those are really great books. And they, they were really helpful for me to write my story. But none of the none of them were just kind of coming of age stories and and none of them were written by women. So I was like, oh, well, you know, this is a voice. Um, I just really felt that like calling like okay like this is the story I need to write let me you know attempt to remember all this stuff (laughs) so I um, yeah so I started writing it about eight years ago
1: a couple things with this I'm wondering if you could maybe for those folks who don't know much about it sort of situate the, the rave scene what you know in the 1990s in the Bay Area sort of what that meant and what that looked like
2: yes um, so I went to my first rave in January of 1996, and by then um, the rave scene was like alive and thriving pretty much all over the world. Um, it started in the UK in the 80s, um, and it was like very much a big part of like their club culture and. Um, so I'd say it started there. There were also like some small pockets of it in like Ibiza, Spain. Um, and kind of the definition was these nighttime get togethers where people would, um, hire a DJ and, um, you know, electronic music was like really starting to, um, blow up at the time, um, the technology and, Uh, so kind of the definition of a rave is a nighttime through the night (laughs) gathering of people who, um, dance to music and many of them usually take drugs and it's this kind of like communal dance, um, place where people could go and just be free and dance and have fun. Um, and they were often illegal um they were just kind of thrown together diy and that was kind of like part of the allure of them um so when i started raving in 1996 uh in the bay area um i'm from oakland and um my first rave was actually in oakland in a abandoned warehouse um and uh at the time, raves were still kind of underground, um, kind of hard to find. You had to call a hotline. We called them raver hotlines. You had to call a hotline to find out either the address of where the party was going to be or the address for the map point. And map point um, was actually another location where you would go first. Um, and it was to kind of like try to throw off <laughs> the police. Um, it was to try to avoid any big crowd gathering. Um, so people would kind of trickle into the map point and then you would get, you'd pay for the party sometimes there and then get the directions. And then the party was actually usually pretty close to the map point. So my first rave, um, the map point was a donut shop. Uh, which was like very random and exciting. Um, And it was also my first time doing acid. So it was a really big adventure because not only was it my first time going to a rave, it was my first time taking acid. Um, I'd already had some experience smoking weed, so I wasn't exactly um, straight edge. Uh, And yeah, so we went to the Mount point, got the directions, paid $5. And, um, then drove over to this other area of Oakland and it was just like all dark warehouses and, um, and then we spotted a few people standing outside a warehouse, like probably, were probably smoking cigarettes. <laughs> and that's how we kind of knew that that's where it was. And it was, you know, it was all very exciting, but it was very hush hush. And, um, You know, I can get more into my first rave, but that was um, kind of my, that's kind of how they went down. That's how um, a lot of people got to the rave. And then when you get there, it's um, in the case of my first rave, it was in the warehouse, um, which is kind of the classic image um, of a 90s rave, is these abandoned warehouses. Um, Certainly around the Bay Area, Um, obviously, depending on where you lived, um, it could have been, uh, you know, it could have been an abandoned restaurant. It could have, I've heard about raves in like a marine mammal center, like, and I went to ones in roller rinks and um, somewhere in clubs. And so it was like any space that you could find that um, had a dance floor and, DJs could set up some turntables um, so my first one was like very much a kind of classic warehouse and there was just a big room um, it was very dark it had just like lasers going off all around and um, the DJ spinning records this is when the DJ still spun vinyl uh, and um it was just this other world. Like it felt like a dream. Like I'd entered like a dream world where it was like, you know, everyone was dancing. Everyone was friendly. There was this like energy that I'd never experienced before. It all seemed, you know, very, um, exciting and promising for just, you know, something that was way more exciting than high school. And, um, yeah, and so uh, that night, and especially once my acid kicked in, <laughs> it was even more fascinating. Um, and then the, there was just one other room at that rave. Sometimes there's multiple rooms, and sometimes they play music in the different room, different kinds of electronic music. So in the Bay Area, there was a lot of house music. That was the style. And then um, they had other rooms sometimes that were, like, some were techno, some were trance, some were jungle. So, like, depending kind of on what your electronic music um, preference was, uh, you could hear that in another room. But this one just had the one main dance room and then a chill room. And then the chill room is a place that sounds kind of like what we called it, the chill room, you would go and you'd chill out there. So it usually had more mellow music. Um, the lighting was more like dreamy, um, you know, it was dim lighting still, because uh, it was like nightlife. But um, there was often water and fruit. And sometimes they would have like massage tables and people could get massages. Um, and chill rooms were very popular in the Bay Area. Apparently, they didn't have chill rooms in every rave scene, so I don't know if it was just, like, California, like, kind of the new age California creeping in there, probably, um, but it was lovely, the chill rooms, because then the music wasn't as loud, and it wasn't as crazy, so you could actually talk to people. You could talk to people. You could meet friends. You could just, like, be really high and just kind of relax more, um, you know, find a sofa. So yeah, so there was a chill room at my first rave, and um, it was just like a whole nother kind of door in this world um, to discover and meet people. And um, that was the kind of that's kind of the simplest way <laughs> of describing what a rave experience could be. Um, and then of course you have people on like different drugs. Like that's, you know, that kind of, that is an element. I always say there's like three elements of the rave scene and one is music, one is community, and one is drugs. So you have those three things and it can make up a rave.
1: So one of the fascinating things, right, so you talk about, and you, in your book, Um, there are, you know, it's divided where you will have a specific chapter really dedicated to that rave. And it's interesting, because you tell us where it is, who you go with, right, the community, and then what drugs you took. Mm. Um, So right, you have (laughs) some of when you say that it's sort of in there. But, you know, what I thought was fascinating was that one of the ways you have remembered or know about this is that you recorded yourself, you know, you have these recordings um, from a lot of these raves. So could you talk about that, like getting that tape recorder and sort of recording this experience and, and even listening back to the. (laughs)
2: Oh yeah, I know. Um, So when I, um, when I had my light bulb moment and I realized like, Oh, you know, I've got all these funny stories and, You know, uh, maybe I should just write them down and see what happens. Uh, I also remembered that I documented um, my experience really well. I actually kept a list of every rave I went to, um, handwritten with like the name of the rave, the date. I wish I had put where it was, but it was just the name and the date. And I, you know, we, we took photos. But it was with like disposable cameras. Um, so I, I, but I have a lot of the photos still. And um, we also had journals that we wrote. Um, like I would write my friend's journals at a party. So I had lots of memorabilia, but um, probably the most important um, tool that I had that helped me write the book was the dictaphone. So um, kind of early on, I think I'd only gone to like five raves or so. I um, I found a dictaphone, which is like the little mini handheld recorders, because not everyone knows what they are anymore. Um, like journalists used to use them a lot, right? Uh, I found it in my parents' house. And I was like, oh, hmm, maybe I'll take this and like record me and my friends and like just for fun. I like was not even thinking, you know, oh, I'm going to be a investigative reporter. (laughs) So um, yeah, so I just started taking it around and interviewing my friends, talking to myself, um, like listening to like recording the music that I was playing. If It was like a really good song. Uh, Sometimes I would forget it was recording and you can just kind of hear like chatter, which is really funny. Um, So yeah, so I had these tapes and I had recordings from about 20 different raves so when i got to writing the book i transcribed the tape and um just saw okay what do i have here um and so not only did i have dialogue authentic dialogue and like what we talked about when we were totally frying balls um or totally out of our head on ecstasy Uh, Also, I could hear the music again in the background and that like immediately transported me to the party, which was a really cool method to help write about it because it's kind of like with music, it's like muscle memory, right? You hear a song and it can like transport you to a memory when you like first heard that song. And so that was a really cool part of the process. And um yeah, and uh you know, I I locked those tapes away. Um I had I had you know, so I was living with my parents. I was, you know, I had had a bedroom in my parents' house and I had a, a box. It was called the bad box and it was a bank bank box where I kept all the tapes and I kept a lot of my like raver um, memorabilia. Uh, and I locked those tapes away and hid them at my parents' house uh, when I went off to college. And so, so, so I came home and got those tapes out. And um, they really helped me write my book. I couldn't have actually written my book without them, I would say. Yeah. Yes.
1: So, um, and you talk about you at your parents' house, you're only six, the majority of the book, you're 16, right? Um, and so in, in, you sort of go between rave culture, but also sort of that home and school and how you sort of balance or sometimes don't balance both, you know, don't balance them. And so one of the things I really appreciated was, was that, that look that it wasn't, this is just the rave culture, but like, how do I figure out what it's like to be a teenager also, and sort of where I fit in as being a teenager, um, So could you talk a little bit about that? Because part of this has to do with you not fitting in at school and trying to sort of figure out a place. So um, what these raves sort of brought for you that you weren't
2: getting um,
1: outside of that space?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, Yeah, I think that duality um, was... What, well, that's what really makes it a coming of age story, because I could have just written a book about a bunch of short stories about like every rave. But I think what um, that was only 50 percent of my life, Um, actually not even 50 percent, although it felt like it was like 100 percent of my life. Um, But, yeah, I was living under my parents' roof and um, I started raving sophomore year of high school. I. I went to a Catholic high school in Oakland, and uh, no uniforms, though, <laughs> um, which I was really glad about. You cannot put me in a uniform. Um, and I was already struggling a bit in school. I um, I did the drama club freshman year, sophomore year, because I enjoyed dancing and singing and music. Um, I'd, uh, I danced Um, Growing up as a little girl, I danced competitively and I wasn't that interested in sports anymore. Um, I grew up swimming competitively as well. And I just, I don't know, once I got to high school, it's just those hormones. I just like wasn't feeling athletic. I wasn't an athlete. And um, so I joined the drama club because that's kind of where a lot of the other creative kids were. and. you know, I could sing and I could dance and um, be a part of this community, like an ensemble. So I really found kind of that was like my first little community was the drama club. Um, but I, I was I struggled in school like I, I did fine like with my grades. But in terms of being inspired, I wasn't really inspired. I, I didn't have aspirations to be a writer. I actually struggled with reading a bit. Um, I felt like I was a slow reader, so I was not confident in the classroom. I was way more confident in my social life or, um, in drama club. And then I was also kind of, um, exposed to smoking weed, um, and kind of interested in alternative stuff, um, early on, um, from like musical tastes. And so I kind of felt like, you know, a lot. A lot of my, a lot of people were into kind of more mainstream things, and I, I mean, sure there were some bands and stuff I liked that were mainstream, but I just couldn't kind of was interested in things that were a bit more quirky, and um, a lot of people say that raves were a place where a lot of like outcasts or like people who were you know kind of didn't feel like they, you know, belonged in or could find a place of belonging in high school. Um, and like thrived because you had the music and you had this other community where it was very accepting as well. Um, You know, I think high school, I don't know if high schools are still like this. Um, I've read a lot of other coming of age stories, but you know, you kind of feel like you have to fit into a category um, and You know, you don't really feel like you have to do that after high school, like as you enter adulthood. And so it's really too bad that that kind of comes with the high school territory. Um, So it's kind of just pressure to like know what your interests are and know who you are. And like that's, people don't even really discover that, you know, (laughs) like until way later. Um, So, Yeah, so that's why when I found Raze, I was just like, whoa, this is a place where I can, you know, I can be really kooky and, like, feel like I have this freedom of, you know, creative exploration um, that I couldn't find at school in, like, art class. (laughs) Um, So...
0: slash nbn50 to get 50% off
1: yeah you know and one of the things i think because and uh, uh, you know that i think maybe also comes out um because you are a female writer and you're talking about this is that you right, there's talk about the music and you mentioned some of the djs but you're also talk a lot about fashion Mm-hmm. Um, right, and it you're, you know, like it takes me back to like thinking about oh yes, like you talk about sort of the clothing and the attire and the fashion and what that meant and what you were choosing to wear, um, and also sort of accessories that you had and you brought with. So can you talk a little bit about that and and you know sort of how fashion played a role in sort of some of those choices that you made during that time?
2: Oh yes, of course, I'd love to talk about the fashion part. Um, so when I talk about, you know, like not really knowing myself and my my interests, actually an early interest of mine was fashion. Um, you know, growing up, I was reading Vogue. I wanted a subscription to Vogue when I was like nine years old, you know, and that's like very sophisticated, um, for a little girl. And I would play in my mom's jewelry and clothes. And so that was a, a, a pretty obvious interest of mine. But again, at my school, like, yeah, I could, like, dress, you know, cool and play around with um, clothes, but you kind of get this, like, reputation as being, like, maybe more high maintenance or kind of snotty because you're into that, Um, and, it's like, that was just my creative expression. Um, So... You know, there weren't a lot of people at my school who dressed interesting. And so um, I guess like that was one area where I liked to play around. Um, so that was a big interest of mine and like fashion as well as like beauty and makeup and just all the girly stuff. <laughs> I was really into it. And um, and so when I found raving, uh, yeah, there was this aesthetic that was different um and not everybody adopted this, the raver style um but what i saw were these giant pants um so like baggy jeans were really popular in the 90s you know it was like the saggy um baggy jeans but these were like pants like beyond you know anything i'd seen and they were super bad i wouldn't even say them they weren't baggy they were wide so there were these two brands that made a lot of the, um, the pants that I was seeing, and they were Jinko and Kickwear, and they both were um, out of Southern California. So these pants were just kind of all over the California race scene. And um, the style, uh, it was a style that both girls and boys wore. So it's kind of cool because there was like this androgyny thing happening and Um, so I immediately picked up on the style and I was like, I'm going to find those pants. And the girls were wearing like sports bras or like, you know, baby tees were really big in the nineties. That was kind of already happening, um, even from like grunge and stuff. And so the baby tees and sports bras and like crop tops. Um, and so I was already interested in a lot of these street brands, um, uh, and so I, you know, was definitely had an eye for that in the culture. And then of course you had your candy jewelry, um and which is candy jewelry has like completely like blown up and is like now like high end jewelry. You can find high end candy jewelry. And so I noticed the colorful jewelry that people were wearing and like the visors and the bucket hats and so um, and, then, and then three stripes. Um, so Adidas was a really big Raver brand. Um, it was really big in Europe, it was a Raver brand. And that, you know, and the three stripes look really cool under the purple, purple lights at a party, you know, they glow. And so I noticed the three stripes everywhere. So I was like, okay, I gotta go get myself some Adidas, these pants. I got to make some of those bracelets, like, I just, like, really kind of um, figured out the style, and so then, of course, like, if I dressed the part, then I felt like, okay, I fit in, Um, and so, yeah, so that was the fashion part of it, and, you know, and then I kind of, as I kind of became more of a raver girl, you know, I kind of figured out my own style within that, Um, but, you know, that raver style is, very um, representative of like the American raver. Um, I feel like the East coast kind of had their own style and then Europe kind of had their own version, but this was very much like the California kid, California raver kid style. Yeah.
1: And and so right, So you've got the style stuff. And then uh, another thing you do and talk about are the people, right? The people you've met and the people who you went to raves with, and you have certain friends that, You spent a lot of time going, you know, that was what you did together and went to raves together and, and to the point where you created a color club, which (laughs) which you kept track of. I was like, there's like a hundred, what, 150, 200 people. Um, But so uh, can you talk about like, you know, I don't know, you don't need to talk about all of it, but are there like certain stories or certain things that like about those communities, those friends and sort of creating that community that was so important to you in that space?
2: Yeah, um, so the unique part about the rave scene for me was that um, my friends at school were very different. I kind of like compartmentalized, (laughs) like I had my school friends and then my raver friends. And then a couple though of my, my raver best friends did go to my school. So we were kind of like the token ravers and, you know, The guys would comment on my pants and be like, "Damn, like your your pants are bigger than mine," and like you know, and so it was like. But by then, I was like, "Whatever, my pants are like super cool. Like you don't know what you're talking about. You don't know fashion." Um. So yeah, but uh, so a couple of my friends were at my school and we kind of represented the ravers at our school. But most of my friends were not at my school, and what was really cool was um. It was just like I said before. It was this melting pot of these kids who just didn't feel like they fit in at their school. They couldn't find, you know, their interests, and um, so they gravitated towards this like underground world. And it was really cool because it. Uh, I mean, I grew up in Oakland, and so I have been exposed to you know diversity, and you know the Bay Area is is an is a kind of melting pot, um, but uh, so there was a lot of that at Rave. But it was also like it exposed me to friends with different socioeconomic backgrounds. So I went to a private Catholic school, um, and some of my friends I met, like they, you know, they were nearly high school dropouts, and they didn't have the same. Privilege that I did. And so it was really interesting to kind of just have, meet these people. And then some of them were older too. So I had some 18 year old friends, which or 19 year old friends, which I wouldn't have had at my high school. So it exposed me to people from different socioeconomic backgrounds, from cities like 45 minutes away. Um, and then also slightly older friends, um, who had kind of been around the block with raving and drugs. And so I learned, you know, I could learn from them. So, um, so that was really cool because, you know, and that's one of the things that made it so interesting too, because it was just really broadening my horizons on so many levels. And, um, and one of my closest friends was a gay guy, and um, he was my first gay husband <laughs> and raver, uh, raver partner in crime. And his journey is really interesting because he, you know, he grew up in Oakland as well, and he came out to his parents when he was really young, when he was like 12. And I, not only was he my first gay, openly gay friend, but my first friend who I had heard of, like that, you know, was that self aware that they came out, you know, and, uh, to their parents about this because it was the 90s. Like you did not have many openly um, gay, kids, like certainly teenagers. And then even in pop culture and stuff, it was like not. Um, you know will and Grace was like just around the bend um, and that would help to, like to help normalize you know um, LGBT folks but at the time like you know it's kind of something I like knew about in my periphery um, but I didn't have any family or anyone um, where I could learn about um, that culture from and so he taught me a lot and so he um, he also, found in uh, rave he found a lot of other um friends from the gay community and that was actually what he because like he, we both hid it from our parents <laughs> um a lot like we did not think our parents would approve a lot of parents did in general didn't approve um and so he actually um explained to his parents like that raving was a place where he felt like he could be himself and he felt like he had other gay friends and he wasn't the only gay kid in school and his parents let him rave after that. And like, that was really, you know, well, I mean, like kudos to his parents, you know, um, but also like kudos to him for being so self-aware and, you know, truthful and, um, really navigating that to staying true to him. And so he's a really interesting character and um, he's still a great friend of mine. And um, yeah. And then I had, you know, I had some uh, girlfriends in the book and guy friends and um, mixed friends. (laughs) And uh, it was really an interesting, lots of interesting characters.
1: Yes, no, there's a point where you're like, oh, I, I'd love to see what this person is doing now, right? Like that book that has a feel of that, like, I, you know, hope everybody made it where they need to be. Another thing you do is that I think is really unique. um, And not a lot of women do it is write about drugs. And in a way, right, and not just we, we have a lot, you know, with, you know, legalizing weed and all that everywhere. We have a lot of that. But it's not right. It's thinking about acid and ecstasy and, and talking about what that experience is like. And so what, how, and I don't know how to, I like, I don't know the best way to ask this, but like, what was that like writing about, right? Writing about that experience to sort of present it, but you not presenting it in presenting it in more of a this is what it was like for me and this is what the experience was and here's how it was really a part of this scene and like I said I think it's pretty unique to um, especially female writers right we don't see a lot of more hard drug mm. cult writing
2: yeah yeah um yeah there's actually a book um on my uh, to read list that is actually about a Women writing about the psychedelic experiences, Um, so you can find it. But I feel like it's definitely still indie. Um, But uh, yeah, writing (laughs) writing my different drug experiences was interesting um, because you know I just like be like, okay, today I'm gonna sit down and write about that you know super fun time on mushrooms when we decorated a parking meter. Which is like it's so random. But because we took mushrooms it actually made it this like really wild experience, um, where we got to explore the drug and do something that if we weren't on the drug would not have been as exciting. Um, so sitting down to write it was was tricky. Um I have to say sometimes it was really fun and sometimes it was really grueling, depending on the drug. And um, you know, I just wanted to be as truthful and authentic to my experience, which definitely took multiple drafts. Um, and, but I remember sometimes, you know, having writing about an experience and like breaking out in a sweat and like breaking out in a sweat, feeling like my heart like starting to like beat, you know, out of my chest and like feeling actually this like physical um, reaction. And again, I feel like it's that kind of muscle memory um, for good or bad, because I'd have to like take a, like go and like go outside and like take a break and go for a walk. And it was like, it's like, it's really kind of ingrained in myself, I feel like. And so when you revisit that, um, like it kind of came out and like, sometimes I remember if I would like be reading, reading a certain chapter, like if I was reading the chapter on... Um, you know when I did Crystal Mask for the first time like it's a hard read for me like I did not <laughs> did not enjoy writing those chapters as much um, but those you know I had to that was part of my trajectory and I had to write about those experiences and um, there was writing it and then there was even reading it sometimes I'd be like oh I have to like edit this chapter and I don't feel like reading it and so I'd have to be in the right space Um, like mentally to be able to tackle certain chapters but then like the chapter where I uh, took ecstasy for the first time which was actually not at a rave it was supposed to be but the rave got shut down but we still got our ecstasy in the parking lot Um, like that chapter was so fun to write and because it was such a like blissful beautiful experience and I still and that's still like actually one of my favorite chapters from the book and so that one was like fun to write easy to write so I would say it kind of goes with the drug experience Um, you know if I had a good trip it was a fun chapter to write (laughs) if I had a bad trip it was a challenge to write. Yeah and,
1: yeah and you right and you've, you you know not only with like the fun trips um or not so fun trips you also sort of talk about um the the beauty of rave culture but some of the the not so you know so you don't um sort of glamorize it all right so there was an incident on um was it a boat like a Boat in the water, right? So there was a big incident there, and so you sort of, you know, let the reader know that, you know, there's these great things, there's these other things you wouldn't trade it, but it, you know, it wasn't all just twenty four seven excitement.
2: Right, right, yeah, and that, and I'm not the only one who burnt out, and I feel like those of us who got really engaged with the scene, uh, a lot of us burnt out, and so like any kind of drug story there is there are highs and lows um and you know yeah because i would you know i feel like you read the first half of the book and you're like woohoo i want to go i want to go to a rave i want to draw i want a candy slip. like i want to do all this this sounds so fun And i was like hmm, i have a responsibility here to <laughs> so like you know to tell the other side of the coin um so I'd say yeah that second half of the book um is like the dark side um and you know and but and that's also how things unraveled for me um because when you kind of go to the dark side um of a you know a subculture and you get into the harder drugs and you start hanging out with the shady people and like that's inevitably with like yeah the shady stuff's gonna happen so. That's what happened to me. And so, you know, it's a cautionary tale, I feel like, because it's, you know, it's like, okay, well, you can try these things, but like this can happen, but this can also happen. And, you know, that's kind of why, you know, now there's so many more resources than when uh, in the 90s in terms of harm reduction and drug education. Um, and I, I actually list those in my book and organizations like Dance Safe which are awesome. DanceSafe actually started in the late 90s um, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And so these are organizations that provide drug testing kits and, you know, all kinds of, you know, uh, reading about the drugs. And so people can make more informed decisions because it's like, sometimes like this this, this is my personality. Like I had an experimental, or I have an experimental personality. And so... You know, I don't think there was really any stopping me <laughs> experimenting with this stuff. Um, so I think it's great now that there are these tools for, for adults and certainly for, you know, young, the youth. Um, and people can make more, you know, conscientious choices and more informed choices.
1: Yeah. And it and it seems like you were with a group of people, at least for the most part, that were also invested in taking care of each other. That right? yeah. which is really important in situations where you're especially if you're going to do psychedelic drugs. Right. You need someone who you can trust to be there with you.
2: Yes. I mean, it's, it's there's sometimes some settings I would not recommend. Um, and a rave setting doesn't sound like the best setting <laughs> to lots of people, but there was rarely, rarely any fights. There were rarely any, if there, if there wasn't overdose, there was a bunch of people there to help with the overdose and, and as well as the people who were throwing the party. Um, so you didn't have dance safe there in the nineties, but you had your friends, you had your community. and um, You know, there now there are like medics, medic teams and all kinds of that at like the huge festivals, which is great and necessary. Um, but yeah, we did look out for each other and it was also just because, you know, there were rarely security guards and you didn't really want to attract the attention of security guard or, you know, the police. Um, so, so yeah, so that was kind of the beautiful part of the community was, you know, we all looked out for each other and I I had a bad trip, like I witnessed bad trips. Um, yeah, I wit- well, I didn't witness, but I was present for a couple deaths. And, um, you know, it was kind of like we all had to band together um, because we we also didn't want the police to find out because, you know, that did inevitably happen um, because scene, scenes got bigger around the country and you did start hearing about more deaths and overdoses and um kind you know that contributed to the demise of raves how they were um in the nineties. But um yeah, that was a beautiful beautiful part of it. We were definitely there for each other. Um we had each other's backs.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you know And there's just one other, I mean, there's many things I could talk to you about, but one thing in particular that I kind of loved is the amount that you all, you and your friends groups were able to kind of, the amount of scheming you did to be able to get to the race, (laughs) right? It was pretty, and I think some of it had to do with that time period, but I will just say that I really loved reading about all the, some of the elaborate planning it took To just even get there, right? Because the rave isn't going to start until midnight.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And if you didn't, I mean, I did have some parents, some friends who had really lax parents. And so they didn't have to like do all the scheming that me and my um, Casey, who was my gay husband, that we had to do um, around our parents. And um, sometimes we, we got, you know, found out. Cause like, you know, it's parents are <laughs> not. the parents are keeping an eye on you. Like they're going to, you know, they're going to want to know what you're doing. Um, and yeah, so the book goes into, you know, kind of how we navigated when the parents did to um, find out and like, did we lie? Did we confess? Um, which I think is all very like teenager, you know, and all the different degrees of like that complex relationship with the parents. Um, I, I sadly never felt like I could really tell my parents what I was doing. Um, They, they were very supportive and loving. um, And, but I was just like totally closed off. Um, I just did not think they would approve. Um, they, uh, I started, um, meeting with a therapist, um, and like things started when I was like getting grounded all the time. And like, they were like, okay, if you're not going to talk to us, like how we're going to get you a therapist. So like we, there's a professional who can help you, you know, um, navigate this time. And that was, uh, that was actually really beneficial and really helpful. Um, and I still I still have, ther- have therapy and believe in it. Um, and I actually still have that therapist from that time, which is really cool. Um, my same therapist in Oakland who knows me so well. And um, yeah, so I feel like there were some friends whose parents did not even know or care, which is like a whole nother, you know, issue and then we were kind of on this on the other end of the spectrum um but you know we didn't have these parents who were authoritarian and just wanted to like walk us up because like that would have just been made that would have made it worse honestly um I would have like run away or something (laughs) so yeah so it's, it's really interesting how my parents um, and and I navigated it, um, and the scheming was necessary in order. You know, I was fighting for my right to party, um, but I think it was maybe a certain point where maybe it wasn't as necessary, and I probably could have opened up to them a bit more. But honestly, I think by then I was depressed. Um, I think kind of all the uh, this is the second half of the book where kind of all the the drugging and the partying was really starting to affect my mood um and i was in a depression and i was not making the best decisions um and so that probably wouldn't have been a good time to open up to them um so i do have regrets about that uh because especially when casey opened up to his parents um and i you know i was like hmm like he opened up to his parents can i do that And i just like didn't have uh, the guts So, so we've
1: been talking, you know, for a while about this and I could probably talk to you for a while longer, but (laughs) I'm sure you have something else to do. Um, But do you, this just came out, right?
2: Um, Yeah, came out a
1: couple weeks ago. Right. So are you, so I was asked if you have anything you want to plug, if you're working on something new, you want to plug, or if there's something with this um, book that you're sort of working on and kind of
2: want to promote or put out there um well thank you so much I've enjoyed talking to you too and um it's great I love that you brought up the color club because no one's brought up the color club yet but there's a whole and list of them all. How can I you not? know but I, uh, you know everyone like there's, lots, there's yeah. lots of stuff to talk about right so I'm glad, thank you for recognizing the color club because that uh, we were very proud of it you should be. Uh, I love really, that you made cards for them too. Like, I'm like,
1: it was like, you were the all members- in
2: the was- membership cards. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's where like my dad's entrepreneurial spirit kind of came in for me. Um, yeah. So, um, so the book came out October 12th and um, I am not working. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm working on other um, freelance work because I am a freelance writer um, so if anyone needs help with writing in, you know, lots of different capacities, whether it's with uh, a book manuscript or editing, um, I'm also an editor and I, I, for me, like the art is in the editing. Um, like I enjoy writing, but, um, you know, I think anyone who's written a book knows it takes a lot of revision. And for me, like the art is in the revision. So I I enjoy editing if anyone needs editing help, but no, I'm not, I mean, I guess I'm kind of fantasizing about some uh, second book ideas, but um, I think it's more just going to be about what's my next big creative project. And I don't know if that's a book or, um, or what. So it's, you know, it's been eight years working on Raver Girl. So I'm kind of just enjoying the, enjoying the ride, the come down um, from the launch and, you know, I'm, I'm excited to hear what everybody thinks about it. So, so thank you. Thank you for sharing your thoughts. And, um, it was great. It was really interesting to, to hear what you picked up on, you know? Um, so.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's, I think it's really fun and I do. I, and well, we talked about this a little before, but I always appreciate when there's like a, a female point of when we hear stories from, what people perceive to be male dominated subcultures from Mm -hmm. people, you know,
2: who don't necessarily identify as male. So. Yeah. And I mean, you know, when I, like I said, when I was writing my book, I read a lot of books, um, But I guess I can plug a couple. There's another book called Rave Art, um, which is by a a British woman. And she was a part of the scene, like the original scene in the 80s. And so she has a book called Rave Art. She actually was also um, a collector of (laughs) memorabilia. And she kept all her flyers in like pristine shape and so she has an awesome book out called rave art if you're interested in mine and then there's also just to shout out to the other ladies um voices in this world um there's also a podcast called rave to the grave which is um all about rave culture and uh it's um hosted by a dj from back in the day new star eyes And, um, yeah, so I feel like let's just like collectively as women start to like tell our stories and share our stories and not be afraid because, you know, I think we all know that drugs are, (laughs) are complex and, um, sorry, not be afraid to tell your stories. Um, and yeah a you know free world. I feel like in terms of you know everything that's happening um, with cannabis and um, and now you know all the research and everything that's going into psychedelic therapy and it's an exciting time. So and we and I'm I'm just glad we have more resources now to be able to do it in safe environments and you know there's like guides and. Um, it's I feel like the future of, you know, of that is really exciting. So that's what I'm watching. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, yes. And it'll be right. We are starting to think about and study and look at I mean, and people have been looking at it for a long time, but it's becoming more um yes, more main I don't know if mainstream is the
2: right I think word it for. is becoming mainstream because have you have you read or seen Nine Perfect Strangers?
1: I've heard about it. I haven't. Yeah.
2: Like she, you know, it's, it's talking about microdosing a wellness retreats and um, like, that's pretty mainstream. If you ask me, it's a who you know, it's, well, it's, it's Leanne Mortieri's book um, and Nine Perfect Strangers and they adapted it to a Hulu show. And um, it, 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 it Uh, reveals, you know, a bit about this world of microdosing um, different plant medicines. I'll just say that. I don't want to give away too much. Awesome. Well, like I said, it's been
1: really great talking to you again, Samantha Durbin, who wrote Raver Girl, coming of age in the 90s. Samantha, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank
2: you. Thank you. It was fun.